What are these campaigns going to look like? Well, we're getting a pretty good idea. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here as always, he was raring to go last week. I just wasn't. It's Jeremy Wallace at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm ready to go. What, what, what a weird, weird week this has been. We're back. We're back. We're back with another program. You know, when I was on the radio daily years ago, the host would always say, welcome to the program. It's not even a real word. Why do people say it that way? This is a program. Welcome to the program. Program. It's made up. It's like we were all supposed to sound like we were from the Midwest or something. Uh, So much going on. Uh, Here's how much is going on, Jeremy. There was literally a hurricane in Texas this week, and we're not even going to talk about it. Yep. Except yep. to say, except for for one thing, I'm going to bring up about that. Let's let's uh, let's focus here on what's going on. I think that we have a pretty good outline at this point of what the 2022 election messages are going to be, at least from the Democrats in the general election. I know what Republicans are going to argue in their primaries, which is that they are, and I'm talking incumbents, they are the most conservative incumbents in the history of Texas. But the way that's going to play in the general election, I think, is um, an open question. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, so let me take you down to San Antonio. Let me give you an example here of what I think the elections are going to look and sound like. Um, Katie Farias is running against John Lujan for an open seat for the uh, Texas House. So there was one uh, member, Leo Pacheco, who is a Democrat, who resigned to take a job somewhere else. And that leaves an open seat, a special election. So they're running against each other right now. And that runs a little bit more like a general election uh, because of the makeup of that district. And there's a chance it was a Democratic seat, but there's a chance that the Republican could pick it up. And you have Republican groups all, you know, getting behind Lujan to try to win this thing. And there's a television ad that the Democrat is running, uh, that Farias is running. And I think it demonstrates the kind of arguments you are going to probably hear for about the next year as Democrats try to make up some ground here in Texas. Listen. Greg Abbott and the Republican extremists in Austin have declared a war on women. Under Greg Abbott and John Lujan, women make 79 cents for every $1 men make. 6,000 rape kids are untested. They ban masks in schools, putting our children at risk. Now they take away a woman's right to choose when we have children? I don't think so. She doesn't think so. So so you hear everything that's in there, right? You hear the abortion stuff. You hear the masks in schools and trying to protect children against the coronavirus. Um, I think she left out the uh, open carry or constitutional carry, the gun stuff, but you're going to hear a lot of that as well. Uh, and I think, uh, Jeremy, the Republicans have given themselves a, a big menu to choose from in their primaries to be able to say, uh, as far as any challenger is concerned, that you don't even there shouldn't even be a primary. In March, they shouldn't even have an election uh, is the way they have set it up. Um, I was thinking about the fact that in the last decade or so, groups like Empower Texans and Texas Right to Life uh, were attacking incumbents in the Texas House all the time, and not just in the Texas House, but but mainly focused there, and tens of millions of dollars probably spent over the course of that decade to try to fend off some of this far-right stuff. Well, this year, Greg Abbott just let them have just about all of it. The only thing that I think is left is, uh, you know, legislation dealing with transgender children and gender modification and stuff like that. And we'll see how that plays out in this next special uh, session that's coming up starting on Monday. Uh, But the Democrats have some pretty decent arguments. I think the question is whether they have decent candidates, whether they can get any money. Right. Uh, Maybe coming, probably not coming in nationally for Texas House races, but maybe if they have somebody like Beto O'Rourke running for governor, uh, then he can attract some national money. Where are you at on this? Yeah, I think you know for sure the 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 Democrats have been helped out quite a bit by the Republicans, right? It's not so much the Democrats have you know built a better mousetrap; the Republicans mm-hmm. have kind of led them to it, right? In terms of you know how conservative this session has been and how conservative this year has been, you know all, all the language coming out of Governor Abbott, you know he's become more and more like Ron DeSantis. And less and less like the Republicans. Remember two years ago how they were like, okay, you know, after 2018, they were like, we got to get into, you know, bread and butter issues and like, you know, start talking about roads and taxes and schools, you know, like things that kind of like wouldn't be so socially heavy. There's some of that going on, but they were trying to clearly shift the message and it worked to their benefit. 
But for some reason in this cycle, as they head into this, you know, they're so much worried about that primary that they've gone so far, you know, on some of these, you know, social issues, mm -hmm. you know, without any seemingly concern about how that plays in the general. And here we go in San Antonio, we're seeing the first vestiges of how do you turn all that messaging into a concerning message in the suburbia, you know, areas that might be more, you know, independent oriented and who knows which way they're going to go. It's like, and this is a really good test of that. So you have a primary for attorney general that is more crowded now on the Republican side. The attorney general, Ken Paxton, is now under fire from, I think it's fair to say, even the hard, hard right. Because look, who, who did we have running against him before? George P. Bush is in yep. this race. Eva Guzman, former Supreme Court justice, is in the race. Neither of them are people I would describe as hard right people. I mean, they're conservative, but not the hard right. They, they would not be criticized by some as, you know, um, Christian nationalist or anything like that. Uh, the next guy in the race has been criticized that way, either, you know, rightly or wrongly. Uh, but a state representative from Tarrant County, Matt Krause, who's a Freedom Caucus member, somebody who has also been the beneficiary of Empower Texans money over the years, just like Ken Paxton. And of course, for people who haven't paid attention, Empower Texans would be what I would call a right-wing enforcement group. Um, Krause now in the race and says, we need a new attorney general. So he's also running as a Republican. He was on the Mark Davis show in Dallas. And I think the whole AG's race is going to be run on the Republican side on the Mark Davis show. He said all of the candidates, they just go on his, his show <laughs> each time. Davis, who's also you know very conservative, he asked uh, Krause point blank, what is the matter with Ken Paxton? Well, I, what uh, concerned me is when you saw last year, there was a massive uh, shakeup in the AG's office. And it wasn't just one or two individuals. It was several uh, of his top lieutenants who resigned in mass and uh, alleged some pretty serious things, uh, whether it was abuse of office, uh, whether it was bribery. Uh, I mean, they were serious allegations. And now uh, the FBI is looking into that. They're, they're investigating that. We'll see what they uh, come out with in their report. But I think that that was kind of the first like, oh, my goodness, this is uh, something that we need to take seriously. And I think even if nothing comes out of that criminally or uh, the investigation doesn't bring up anything, I think it uh, has to be at some, at some point a distraction to the office and to the work that they're doing. And, and you can say, well, they're doing these things and these things, but how much more could they be doing if you didn't have this distraction of the FBI investigation, major turnover and turmoil uh, in the AG's office. So that's kind of what started me thinking about, should there be somebody? It didn't have to be me. It didn't necessarily need to be me. Uh, but is there a reason that we need to uh, look for somebody else potentially to be the Republican nominee in 2022? So he's saying even if nothing eventually comes out of the multiple investigations against Paxton, of course, he's under indictment already for about the last six or seven years for state charges having to do with securities fraud. But Krauss is saying it doesn't matter. It's already a big problem for the entire Republican ticket in November. And, and I think you have to look at just the political reality of it. Uh, the Republican nominee either being um, under indictment by the FBI or continue FBI investigation, or if it's accelerated at that point. Uh, and 2022 is a pivotal year. And uh, we saw in 2020, uh, the Democrats came full bore uh, that just in the House races alone, they spent about 60, $65 million. We don't anticipate any less effort this time. And so we want to have the, the strongest ticket possible when it comes to next November. Uh, and I think that there would be that cloud there uh, if, if he's the nominee. And, and again, and, and the results may uh, show us, uh, whether in the near term or the long term, that there was nothing untoward, that there was nothing out there. Um, but if there is or that potentially hurts the ticket, uh, I think that's a serious political reality we have to look at. Interesting to me, Jeremy, that Krauss is probably the most conservative person I have heard to make that argument. Is We've heard a version of that from Commissioner Bush, uh, but I don't think it hits quite the same way. And actually, I think when Bush said it, he danced around it a little bit more than Krauss is doing. In yeah. some ways, I mean, is that fair? I, I think Krauss um, is empowered to make the argument because he's from ideologically the exact same lane as Paxton, right? People can't say this is some liberal who's saying it. This is somebody who's a Democratic sympathizer. No one would say that about 
Matt Krause. And, and I don't want to overestimate his chances of winning the race or anything like that. I mean, tr- trying to run statewide as a state representative, that is a, a big, really hill, real big yep. hill to climb. Even a, even a member of Congress. You know, most people don't even know who the next congressperson over is, you know, the next district, if they even know their own Congress uh, member. Um, So so what do you think? I mean, here we have uh, Bush, Guzman and now Kraus against Paxton, four people running for this. Paxton, by the way, this morning, I didn't uh, have they haven't posted the audio yet, uh, but we'll listen to it at some point. But apparently Paxton said his argument against this, his response on this was to say, look, we already have enough problems, uh, you know, with, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but we have enough problems with potentially being under indictment and all of that without these people pointing it out so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know that that was the best argument ever in the history of the world, but um, classic strategy is you uh, crowd the field uh, and you hope to, if you're trying to get this guy out of office, get him into a runoff. And the runoff is where an incumbent is usually very much in danger because it's just a mathematical problem, right? If you're into a runoff in Texas, the law is that if you're not, if nobody's over 50%, well, then they have to go to a runoff. And if you're the incumbent and more than half of the people voted against you, that means you're the one with the record that people are willing to fire. The only thing that I would say uh, to temper that is that Paxton might have the advantage in a runoff because he's the guy who has the support of Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, what I want to know is what all these other Republicans running against Paxton think they can do when Donald Trump is on in a TV ad saying Ken Paxton's my guy. And it's like, that's it. That's good. You know, when you think about the hardcore primary voters who are going to crawl through over broken glass to vote in, you know, in the attorney general's race, you know, those Republicans are going to hear Trump saying i love paxton the whole time but you know i think what's interesting about like all these republicans in the race yeah they clearly are seeing the same numbers that i'm looking at which Mm -hmm. is you know you go back to 2018 and you see you know ken paxton uh just barely made it to 51 percent of the vote you know we're we're not talking he didn't win some big landslide here there's already you know 49 percent of you know you know voters said I'm already willing to go somewhere else. Uh, and so you add, you know, the continuing blue streaks that are happening in Harris County and Houston and along the I-35 corridor, the blue spine, as I keep talking about it, mm-hmm. like as those two things continue to shift, it's like from four years ago, how bad could this be for a candidate like Ken Paxton? Could he lose worse than he did four years ago? And I think that's what you're hearing from some of these Republicans saying, yes, we think he might be losing worse. And that could cost us the attorney general's seat, uh, which we don't want. And so you can see the logic kind of playing out. They see the numbers. Everybody knows the numbers right now. You know, mm-hmm. Ken Paxton is going to lose Harris County. It's just a question of how badly and can it be so bad that it actually costs him the election statewide. Yeah. And I think this race um, may be uh, the most prominent example in the entire United States of what the influence of former President Trump is in the Republican Party. You have now a, a person from every ideological lane within the party now running against Paxton. Right. Yep. And and the, the, the thing he has going for him is that Trump supports him. So yep. is that the only thing that matters? I mean, it, it is possible. I don't know this. I know that there are some Republicans who are betting that the influence of Trump will have waned enough by the next primary, uh, whenever it actually happens. It may not be in, in March. In fact, it'll probably be after that uh, because of the redistricting timeline. Uh, but by the time we get to the primary, there are some Republicans who think it won't matter that much. It'll matter some, but not as much as it matters right now. We've already seen around the country some mixed results for President yep. Trump in his endorsements, right? So it's not that he has a complete lock on the whole party, but we also see if there are members of Congress, for example, who are resigning their seats or announcing that they're not going to run again because they were some of the ones who uh, you know, have voted against Trump on certain things, right, yep. including uh, the impeachment uh, of President Trump. Uh, so it's still very divisive within the party. And can they move past it? This race may very well give us the answer to that. Um, what do Republicans want to argue in November? So we were talking about that. And I think that Congressman Dan Crenshaw and others would like to go back and play the hits. You know, again, I mentioned my career in radio. You always play the hits. Yep. You know, on a top, you know, on a top forty station, the playlists are so tight that you can hear the same song 
within an hour. Now it used to yeah. not be when I was when I was a disc jockey many 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 years ago that was not the case. You'd have to wait at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Now they'll even play. And you've, have you heard this? Where they'll, well, they'll they'll do uh, like an instant replay. They'll play the song Sarah, and then they'll play the exact same song again, right? Like that. It's because it happens to be the number one song at that time. So Crenshaw, right now, wants to play the hit for Republicans, which we know in 2020 was what defending the police against the defunding police people. Right. And tell yep. us how this, tell us how this even came up, Jeremy. There was a bill that's being debated in Congress, uh, in this committee that Dan Crenshaw and uh, Lizzie Fletcher, both, uh, members from Houston, a Republican and a Democrat, they got into it. Uh, the bill was unrelated to defunding the police. So how did this even come up? Yeah, exactly. This was really a boring Monday night <laughs> that was going to be, you know, nobody's expecting anything interesting, you know, coming from it, right? You but know, because like, this, we don't have lives, of course, we're watching. Exactly. So, 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 you know, Congress is, you know, digging into the Build Back Better bill. If people remember, that's what, you know, Joe Biden's big spending plan to, you know, change America as we know it and, you know, fund all sorts of different priorities. So it's a massive bill that deals with a lot of stuff. Well, the Republicans decided that they were going to try to put in an amendment that would, you know, you know, block 911 funding to you know, cities that try to defund the police. And so it had no chance of ever passing. There's no way it was going to be in Joe Biden's big package, right? Can we all agree to that? It's mm -hmm. like there's no way it had any hope, but yet there was Dan Crenshaw uh, you know, he gets, he, he gets recognized and he was, you know, really animated in his discussion about this issue. You know, he had, you know, arms failing, his voice goes up and down yeah. and just a very different kind of a look than I'm used to seeing. And so I thought to myself, I think I'm the one to pay attention to this. Yeah, there is something here. Let, let's listen to some of that. So, so Crenshaw in the middle of this hearing, he goes off on this rant. Look, I'm glad to see the passion on the other side for this. I'm glad to see that when we just repeat what the left says, it makes you guys really, really mad. Why? Because it's insanity. The defund the police slogan is insanity. I'm loving watching you guys claim that, yo, it's really not our position. It's just some fringe movement. We're going to get to that in a second. But first, let me just state the obvious that everybody has been saying <laughs> This amendment is common sense. And just like all the other previous amendments, they expose the hypocrisy and the contradictions that are present on the other side of the aisle. And that's the purpose of this, to expose how insane this actually is, to expose the reality that if a city is defunding the police, they probably don't need more money for 911 centers, do they? And do I need to point out that it doesn't matter if you call 911 if there's no police on the other end of that because your liberal mayor has defunded them? Do I need to point that out to you people? So spare me the outrage on the other side because we're exposing what your side says all the time. Spare me the outrage, he says, while sounding quite outraged about all of it. Then he commits the no-no of naming names of members of Congress who he says are to blame and who aren't even there to defend themselves. And no, it's not. A myth. Lots of cities have done this. Like we've already said, 25 have either done it or proposed to do it. You say, oh, well, not us. We haven't done it. Your most famous members of Congress have. The ones controlling your party, the squad, Elhan Omar, Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush, they're all on the record saying when we mean defund the police, we mean defund the police. He mentioned Ocasio-Cortez. That's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who trolled everybody with that tax the rich dress earlier this week. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. People who would never say tax the rich kept saying it because they were quoting what was on her dress. Uh, anyway, uh, after you had Crenshaw do that. Uh, Lizzie Fletcher, Democrat of Houston, was next to speak. And I guess that was just procedural. She was up next to speak. But she did say that what she specifically wanted to comment on was Crenshaw's comments. When Mr. Crenshaw said that this amendment is common sense. And as someone who practiced law for more than a dozen years, I can tell you that this amendment is not common sense. This is not a smart amendment to a bill uh, that is designed to fund the police. It is overly broad and vague. And it it We've already had Ms. Blunt Rochester ask counsel, who has demonstrated that this cannot be followed. This will make things harder rather than easier. And, you know, it's it's so vague that an entity, perhaps entertaining a citizen request or one member of counsel, um, could come in and could say, well, they've considered 
a motion to, to defund the police. Some cities, like ours, where Mr. Crenshaw and I both live, requires the city to balance the budget. And we all know that cities like ours and cities across the country have, have had reduced revenues during the coronavirus pandemic. And in fact, if we had not given the state and local funding that we did provide in the American Rescue Plan, they may very well have had to reduce budgets across the board. This could be a 10-person budget cut. It's so vague. And so the idea that this is just a, a, a well-meaning, common-sense amendment that everyone should agree to is, is just a proposition that I cannot accept. I don't think our committee should accept. I don't think we should be bullied into accepting it. There are many members who have spoken very eloquently about the things that we can do and the things that we can't do. And certainly, none of us speak for everyone across the country. We represent various communities. That's the beauty of the Congress. We all come together from across the country with this geographic diversity that's built in to what we do here to bring our perspectives. That is about as worked up as I've ever heard the congresswoman. I mean, she was very agitated with uh, Crenshaw. And part of it, I think, is that, and I, and I think you pointed this out, Jeremy, is that Crenshaw said what he was doing, right? I mean, he, yeah. he said he, he, in his comments that we just heard a minute ago, he said that what he's doing is trying to expose the hypocrisy of the left and call out the Democrats for some of the most extreme members in their conference, which I would point out both of the uh, Republican and Democratic conferences have extreme members. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that the Republicans all believe all the things that come out of the mouths of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Louis Gohmert. But, but you have Crenshaw sounding a little more Gohmert-like than like John Cornyn in this exchange. Yeah, it, and that's what kind of struck me. Everything, you know, both Crenshaw and Fletcher were just showing us a side that we're not used to seeing from uh, either of these when we're in Houston. We don't normally right. see, you know, Lizzie Fletcher girding to, you know, take on Crenshaw, you know, one-on-one -on -one like this. And we don't normally see, you know, Crenshaw this animated, I think, at least to a general audience. You know, maybe he does this in conservative media outlets, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it, it was a different side of both of them, particularly given that these two typically have worked well together on stuff and praised sure. each other and they've put out joint press releases in the past and and so and there's kind of an unspoken rule in Congress where you know you got to really think long and hard before you want to take on a fellow member from your same area in which you're going to be on a plane pretty much every Friday night going back home with like <laughs> right. there's only so many flights between DC and Houston and they will all be on the same flight at some point And that could get really uncomfortable. So, you know, if you're near the airport, you might, you know, want to watch for a frosty exit, you know, coming from, you know, the next flight. Yeah, and one other thing, I mean, Crenshaw also took it to another level. After this was all done with, then he starts tweeting hatred at her about a completely different topic. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the fact that, like, he started going after her and, you know, you know, putting in quotes that she's a moderate, you know, just like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. It's like, so now he's taking this into his social media world. Now, remember, he has a huge Twitter following. He loves to feed off of this thing. And so by going to them, I think, you know, he was trying to make this an issue. You know, he wanted he wanted people to kind of get involved in this thing. So, uh, yeah, it was it was all very unusual and certainly a different side of these folks that I'm used to seeing. One of the other arguments that you have Republicans wanting to make, at least now, and I think probably going through the general election, is the issue of illegal immigration and border security. Again, playing the hits. These are the things yep. that have worked in Texas, right? And we have uh, more headlines about that this week. Uh, I saw where Ted Cruz had gone down to the border, and there's one bridge that he was standing under. You saw all the pictures of this where um, I think a week ago or two weeks ago, there were probably about 600 to 700 uh, migrants who had made their way to the border and were staying under this bridge, uh, hoping to get into the United States, be processed and all that. Uh, and because of a decision by the Biden administration, without getting into the weeds of the policy just, just right now, um, Cruz and others blame Biden for uh, making a decision that has attracted more people to that area. So now we have, what, around 10,000 people there? Yep. It was, I think it was around 8,500, and then Cruz was saying 10,000. Who knows the exact number uh, because all of this is uh, – let me tell you something. If you want to get uh, blasted as a journalist, try to guess how many people are at a protest, for example. Yeah. The people, the people on one side of it will tell you well, – the people who are there for the protest will say, no, it's way more than that. 
And the people who are against them will say, no, no, there weren't that many people there. You're, you're guessing. That's why I always ask, you know, a, a police officer on the scene, how many people would you say are out there? And then I can say law enforcement on the scene says, right? So yeah. I think that's probably around 7,500, 8,000, something like that. Uh, you have never seen in recent years a moment where there are a lot of migrants on the border and Republicans don't want to have a photo op out of that. So Cruz was there making his case. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was on Fox News Channel because, of course, he was. And he goes in a dark direction with this. This, to me, sounds like a primary uh, election argument and not a general election argument. He says, and I've heard a version of this before. I just don't know that I've heard it from Dan Patrick. He said, look, all these immigrants are coming in here and they're going to have lots of babies. This is replacement theory. I just call it what it is, right? I mean, you have heard this kind of rhetoric from other politicians in the past, and that's why I call it a dark place to go. He told Laura Ingram on Fox News, all these immigrants are going to come in. They're going to have babies, and all of them, it was like, mamas, please don't let your babies grow up to be Democrats, is what this sounds like. Listen, he says, all these immigrants are going to come in, and in, in 18 years, about 20 years from now, all of them are going to vote for Democrats because Joe Biden is letting them into the country. The revolution has begun, a silent revolution by the Democrat Party and Joe Biden to take over this country. Tomorrow is Constitution Day. And folks, if you haven't read it, you need to read Article 4, Section 4 very quickly. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union and shall protect each of them against invasion and domestic violence and guarantee a Republican form of government. We need every state, every red state, because the blue ones won't do it, to send and invoke Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution to tell the president that we are being invaded. Now, invasion, properly defined by most, says it's an unauthorized, uninvited, unwelcomed incursion in your territory or property. This is not authorized by the state of Texas. It's not welcomed by the state of Texas or any other Republican state that I know, and they're not invited. And so every red state should invoke this clause now because every red state is being impacted and the blue states apparently don't care. Laura, when I say a revolution has begun, they are allowing this year probably two million, that's who we apprehend, and maybe another million into this country. At least in 18 years, even if they all don't become citizens before then and can vote in 18 years, if every one of them has two or three children, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of new voters. And they will thank the Democrats and, and Biden for bringing them here. Who do you think they're going to vote for? If you punch in the quote from him, like that entire quote about all of the kids coming in uh, to the United States, people coming in. The kids will have kids will have kids, and there'll be way more Hispanic people there here than white people. If you punch all that into Google, what comes up is something called the Great Replacement, right? Okay, this is the idea that white people are being replaced by brown people. It's not the first time we've heard this sort of rhetoric in the United States and in other countries. What I'll say about it for right now is this, and I'm going to let the listener think what they want about that. I think I, I think I have an idea. But but as far as the politics of this, Jeremy, this sounds more like the way Republicans would talk when they win Texas by five or six points than when they would win Texas by 21 points or yeah. when they would win Texas by 16 points. President Trump did the worst of any Republican nominee for president in Texas in a generation. Right. And you while while Republicans are going to be able to redraw the maps for and this is what they're going to try to do here although there is a federal challenge to it in court right now we'll see how that plays out but they're going to redraw the maps for the texas house the texas senate uh the state board of education the congressional districts you can't redraw the state right and this is yeah. what i keep telling democrats all the time well they'll say well they'll just gerrymander the whole thing there's no way for us to win you, you don't get to redraw the state right and democrats have been more and more competitive it largely because of demographic shifts largely because of president trump himself I've described it this way. I think he, more than anybody else, more than Beto O'Rourke, more than Greg Abbott, more than any of the other big political figures, Trump has done more to make more Texans into combatants rather than just civilians when it comes to elections and politics. You have all of these new, young, more liberal, more progressive voters in the state, millions more just in the last two, four, six years, 
right, than we had seen in a long time. We talked about how those numbers were just escalating at a huge clip over the last couple of cycles. And talking like this is the way to win by three or four points, right? This is the same stuff that comes out of Trump's mouth. This is not the all-inclusive Republican Party. How much work has been done? And you've written a lot about it over the last 10 to 15 years. Think all the way back to 20 years ago when uh, Governor Bush was there. What, what did Governor Bush say about it before he was president? The quote that people remember about immigration when it came to George W. Bush was family values don't end at the Rio Grande. Yep. Patrick's literally saying they shouldn't bring their families here. It's a big shift. Well, and, and, you know, there's a little bit of a, a rough edge to this, too, because like this, this surge that we, you're seeing out in Del Rio of migrants, uh, you know, there's a lot of Haitian migrants that ended up over there. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and that, the, that's a lot of black faces that we're talking about that mm-hmm. are in the middle of this current discussion. That makes me nervous. Anytime you start hearing, you know, this discussion about people replacing you know, right, the people black people having babies. It's like, why, yeah. why are we saying that? Why aren't we worried about that from like the Norwegian, you know, immigrants who are flying in here on tourist visas and disappearing? You know, it's like right. there are other, you know, places, but it's the outrage over a lot of people with black faces in Del Rio right now. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it makes me nervous. I hope, yeah. you know, I hope we're not saying this just because these are Haitian you know, migrants and not Norwegians. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And Patrick is the same one who took a lot of heat in recent weeks for saying that it's the black people who are essentially uh, to blame yeah. for the high rates of unvaccinated people. Uh, you know, people are uh, hesitant in the African-American community. And I think what he said uh, was something along, we played it here on the show. People can go back and listen. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that, you know, black people mostly vote for Democrats and the Democrats aren't doing enough to tell people they need to get vaccinated. When it's Dan Patrick who goes on Fox News Channel and says people shouldn't have to get the vaccine if they don't want to. Right. I mean, square that uh, for me now on COVID-19. It's enough about that for right now. I'll come back to Dan Patrick Um, uh, on uh, COVID-19. You have Governor Abbott fighting with uh, Biden and the Biden administration is making moves to try to get businesses to mandate their employees get the vaccine because look get the vaccine get the vaccine and get the vaccine that's what we know would do the most good to combat this pandemic again i say to you if a year ago more than a year ago i had said we're going to have a vaccine that's safe effective and free unlike horse dewormer that you have to pay for <laughs> if if i said you have a vaccine that's safe effective and free and at the same time, we're still dealing with these incredible numbers, Jeremy. Tell, tell us that you usually have the numbers right there at hand. I mean, tell me kind of where we are right now with COVID-19 in Texas. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm very troubled by the numbers this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the state uh, is reporting 4,025 more people have died from this virus just since the start of September. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, again, we're, we're talking, it's September 17th, you know, when we're recording this and you know, we're 4,000 just since the start of the month. So that, that's that's equal to all of the people who will die in traffic fatalities in Texas this year for the whole year. And we just lost that in, a, in less than three weeks. Uh, but but regardless of that, there is a little bit of a glimmer of hope, you know, in that the hospitalization numbers have come down a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Not a lot. You know, we're still over 12,000 hospitalizations, which really still has hospitals strained all over the place. You know, you look at places like like Waco right now, you know, God bless the folks up there who work in hospitals and the medical community because they are, you know, you know, we're talking like 20, 30, 40 beds left, you know, to deal with the surge of patients in the entire region. And they have almost no ICU beds on any, any given day to handle mm-hmm. it. So you can see like, you know, the numbers are getting better on hospitalizations, but in some regions, it's just still really kind of stressed out. Yeah. And while his own government, the state uh, department of state health services is telling people, go get the vaccine. And you see uh, posts on social media from the agency that deals with all this, that people need to get the vaccine and that we're dealing with a real crisis uh, right now uh, when it comes to this. At that same time, Governor Abbott is on Fox News Channel because of course he is and told Sean Hannity that as he sees it, governors like 
he himself, Abbott and Ron DeSantis, people like that, they have more authority over all this than um, than President Biden. <laughs> and it sounds like he's more interested in talking about a constitutional showdown with the Biden administration than he is interested in getting people vaccinated, which is what would deal with the disease. And he does not have that authority under the Constitution. As you point out, it is states and governors who have the authority. And Sean, I have issued an executive order already in existence that prohibits any government from imposing a vaccine mandate on my fellow Texans. So we're going to have a constitutional showdown. I believe that governor's orders will supersede the president's orders because the president does not have the authority to impose this. I'm reminded of Senator Cruz when he was battling the Democrats on Obamacare. And he would put out these YouTube videos where he would talk about the epic battle in Washington, where they're taking all this. How did that turn out? Not well for his side of the deal. Um, I think with his filibuster, remember where he read green eggs and ham on the floor of the U.S. Senate? Technically, it wasn't even a filibuster. It was just a long speech that went all yeah. night. Yeah. I watched most of it. Hey, I know some of the Senate rules in Washington. Um, they want this fight. They want the fight. They don't want to collaborate. They don't want to cooperate, or at least they don't want to be seen as doing that. They want the fight. You remember when Abbott was attorney general, he would say that his job was to wake up in the morning, go to the office, sue Bar you know, Barack Obama, and go home. And now it seems that his job as governor is to go to the office, get sued by everybody else, and then go home. So he's being sued by Biden. He's being sued by uh, you know the local entities around the state. His um, his attorney general Paxton is suing school districts all over the place. Seems like it's more about the fight than about trying to come to some resolution on this stuff. Yeah, and it was interesting last night too to see like you know even the way the White House was engaging with Texas is a lot more aggressive now too. Yes. It's like last night I don't know if you saw it, but you know Biden tweets out you know Republican governors in states like Texas and Florida are doing everything they can to undermine the public health requirements that keep people safe. He's he's he, you know it's no longer veiled. It's no longer him saying you know some Republican. No, no, he's saying right. no, no. It's it's, it's Greg Abbott. Abbott and mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis are my problem. And they're playing politics with, you know, the lives of children. It's like the, for Biden to come out and do that or his team, at least, to, to tweet that out, says, OK, no, bring it on, you know, Governor Abbott. We want We want this fight, too. And it's kind of a pattern, a, a running theme here of uh, where Democrats might have kind of taken a pass on some of these fights before they're not doing that. You heard Lizzie Fletcher do that with Crenshaw earlier in the show. Yeah, now you point. see Biden. You see Biden now saying, like, actually, if, if the Republicans are saying, you know, screw you. Well, then he's going to say, screw you back, right? They, yeah. they normally wouldn't have done that before. It's a different, yeah, it's, different I'd time. I'd have to kind of go back through, but you know, it feels like when, uh, when Abbott used to sue Obama and then go yeah. home, it's like you didn't hear a lot from Obama coming back at Greg right. Abbott because he didn't even, mm -hmm. probably even know who he was. But now here, and Biden definitely knows who Greg Abbott was. And let, let's remember, like these guys – still talk you know it was just you know again in the olden days of monday of this week when we had a hurricane bearing mm -hmm. down on the texas coast you know governor abbott told us that he had talked to joe biden that day you know to and biden had made sure he'd be there to help out texas whatever they needed you know and here we are a couple of days later and they're just lighting each other up <laughs> yeah. same with uh ron DeSantis after that uh, condo collapse in uh, the miami area and you had biden yep. sitting next to him saying whatever y'all need we're going to get it for you DeSantis sounding very thankful for that uh, sort of collaboration. But as soon as they leave the meeting, somebody probably just like Crenshaw starts tweeting hatred at the other person. Yeah. Um, who, and yeah. I would say it's a lesson from the, the Chris Christie days. If you remember the, you know, the former New Jersey governor, he had that moment with Barack Obama after Superstorm Sandy, where they were kind of almost like hugging each other and being nice. And you're thinking that's a good moment for, you know, the, you know, moderates, you know, of the world and independence, but in the in the Republican base, that didn't play well, and no. you know, everybody's kind of learned their lesson. Yeah, you can be you know, nice to you know Joe Biden when he calls to give you some help, but then make sure you you know flame him later because <laughs> yeah, right. you don't want to look like you're kissing you know Joe Biden at this point. One of the things that I've observed over the last uh, 10, 15 years is that the bases of the Republican and Democratic parties do not speak the same language at all, and they don't Good. know why the. They don't know why the other side is upset about the stuff they're upset about. So let me help anybody who's maybe a Democrat listening, or I think we have a lot of moderate listeners. I know that whether they're Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever, 
all of our listeners are very well informed. But uh, but I know that there are people who don't get this. Like, why is Abbott doing that? Why isn't he just saying people should get the vaccines? Why does Dan Patrick go through the tortured rhetoric of on the Laura Ingram show? Because he, he was also on that show to talk about vaccines this week. And he, he goes through this whole rap about how people shouldn't have to take the vaccine. I believe in choice. People should do what they want. He says, but I'm vaccinated. Right. So why don't you just say people should get vaccinated? The most helpful thing that any of them could do is just say that, but not get distracted by these other things. Here's yeah. why. Here's why. So I'm watching the social media traffic go by and I see this video of a parent in the Round Rock ISD in Williamson County, suburban Texas. There is a guy standing there with his young daughter holding her hand. And it looks like they've been kicked out of a meeting and the school district police are keeping this guy at bay. And he's yelling at the police. Well, he's not well, a part of it. He's kind of yelling, but the, the rhetoric that he's using is really over the top about the fact that there, that he's been um, rejected from a meeting there at the, at the, at the school uh, because he doesn't have a mask on. His daughter doesn't have a mask on and they have a mask requirement there. So he's very upset about this. It goes straight to comparisons to Nazi Germany. All right. It, does, it doesn't take him long. It goes from zero to 60. You, sir, need to wear a mask here. And he immediately is talking about Hitler. Okay. Yeah. This is the way some people are thinking about this. Listen to and, the and, guy. And here, yeah. Just a reminder that yeah. it's never good in any political argument ever to use the word Nazis. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's almost never appropriate to yeah. compare anybody ever on earth to Nazis unless you're talking about Hitler. <laughs> there has to be a very specific fact pattern for that to be the right thing to bring up. Right. Yeah. So, so listen to that was very lawyerly. You, you see why the lawyers love this show? I use, I threw in the term fact pattern. They oh, love that. Yeah. Listen to this guy. So mad about having to wear a mask at a school confronting the police and his, um, his rhetoric. It's just, it's, it's just over the top. It's just like in the days of Hitler when Hitler said, well, I'm in charge. Okay. And so you can go kill off a million Jews. Okay. So Same thing. There's no difference between him being asked. You heard that there's no difference between him being asked to wear a mask and his daughter to wear a mask and take the kind of precautions that we're all being asked to take, um, to try to ward off a disease. There's no difference between that and putting people on train cars to concentration camps. That's the that's his thought process. Okay, that is the person. I am not exaggerating. That is the person that Greg Abbott is appealing to when he's talking about you know this idea that no one can force you to get the vaccine. No one can force you to wear a mask. He is a. I'm, and I want to be careful with the way I say it. Abbott doesn't think that it's Hitler like. Abbott doesn't think that this is anything like the Holocaust, but. He's counting on the votes of people who do think that. And why? Because he's in a Republican primary where he has people like Don Huffines, who's one of his challengers, and Alan West, who's one of his challengers. What were the reasons that they decided to file to run for governor against him or that they announced against him? Filing period's coming up. But, but why are they running against him? It was all about COVID restrictions last summer. Alan West, when he was the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, was making some unprecedented moves, things that I had never seen from a GOP chairman before, suing the Republican governor, protesting at the Republican governor mansion, and all of that in relation to what? To this. And it has moved Abbott throughout the pandemic to completely change what he was doing. You remember at the very beginning of all this, after Abbott said, I'm the one who gets to make all the decisions here. He had, ta he had taken away authority from the mayors and the county judges, local officials around the state. He said, I'm the one who gets to make these decisions. The, and almost no one remembers this part. He laid out a plan that was pretty reasonable at first, I thought. And he said what at the time? It was all driven by doctors and data, doctors and data. I don't think doctors nor the data would be telling him to fight Biden about vaccines. I don't think the doctors would be telling him, uh, you know, don't tell businesses that they should uh, be able to ask people just for proof that they're vaccinated. How about in a free market, you let the businesses decide that for themselves if they want to do that. Those challenges and the kind of threat that Abbott perceives from his right is why he's doing that. And it's all driven by people like that parent who thinks that if you're asked to wear a mask, then it's no different from putting a star on somebody. Yeah, it's interesting because I'd asked Abbott's people earlier in the week about like, you know what I don't hear him saying much about anymore are masks. You know, it's like, you know, you don't really see him, you know, wearing masks in, at events. You don't see him, you know, telling people they should, you know, wear masks and socially mm -hmm. distance when they can't, 
uh, you know, you know, se separate themselves from others. Uh, and, you know, so I asked him about the mask stuff and he said, well, and, and their answer was nothing to do about masks. It was all about, uh, you know, you know, he's been you know, encouraging people to get, you know, vaccines if they're eligible. But of course, you know, it's like he always throws in a, a, a phrase to make sure people know it's their choice. You know, it's that this is all about individual responsibility. He doesn't want to talk about masks anymore. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about, you know, those types of things anymore. And I think you're right. It's like that was very different from earlier year before mm -hmm. he had primary challengers. You know, mm -hmm. back in January, when we had a last massive surge of this. You know, he was encouraging people to wear masks. You know, it's like it was in press releases. It was on, you know, his social media accounts. So very different approach from January till now. And it's logical to ask the question of, so what's different from January to, to September? Mm -hmm. And obviously one of them is he has two primary challengers who are calling him King Abbott because of his previous restrictions and asking people to mask up. He was tyrannical when he was asking people to be reasonable. So I have been uh, asked this question over and over again. Um, have we been through anything like this before? And my answer again and again has been yes. And I'll give an example. Years ago, in the 1980s, they were debating whether to have mandatory, mandatory seatbelt laws all over the United States. Do you think that if the same debate was playing out now that Texas would adopt a mandatory seatbelt law, Jeremy? Hmm. <laughs> I have serious doubts. Now, at the yeah. time... The proposition was that if, if states did not, this is when there was a little bit more of a negotiation between the, the federal government and the states. And, and why were they doing this in the first place? It was because people were dying like crazy all over. I mean, we have done a lot in the United States to cut down on the number of auto-related deaths, right? I mean, seatbelts, drunk driving laws, you go down the list. All of this is um, a regulatory scheme that we've all agreed to because it's good for everybody, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. We don't want people to be dying on the roads. We don't want insurance rates that are through the roof, the insurance rates that would be so high that nobody would be able to drive a car, things like that, right? It, it, these things have impacts across the entire population. So people say, well, listen to that crazy parent talking about Hitler. People say, look at the rallies where these people are saying, you can't tell me to do that. It, it's like there's no freedom anymore. It's like there's no liberty in this country anymore. Well, there was a um, compilation of news reports from the 80s that was circulating this week online, and it was news reports about seatbelt laws and what people were saying about a mandatory seatbelt law back in the 80s. You tell me if it's not all the same exact stuff that people are now saying about masks and vaccines. If the town council gets its way, seat belts will be mandatory for everybody riding in the front seat of a car through Richland. I'll have to detour the town to get to Kalamazoo. They pass a seat belt ordinance, but I don't use a seat belt. I wouldn't wear my seat belt. I get caught, I get caught, I guess. Florida Highway Patrol Lieutenant Chris Miller hears it all when it comes to seat belts. I hear it's uncomfortable, um, it wrinkles my clothes. Um, it's not cool. There's no freedom no more. You don't want to wear it, that's your choice. You don't want to wear it, that's your choice. The same exact thing people would say about masks in public places. Um, in that debate, eventually, I think with the exception of one state, there's, I, I know of one state, there may be more, I think there's only one though, one state where they don't have a mandatory seatbelt law. You know where it is? No, I don't. New Hampshire. Oh, okay. The live free or die state. Yes, yeah, so they're, they're the only ones who are a little bit more liberty oriented than Texas, <laughs> um, at least as far as I know. If anybody knows of another state that they can correct me on that. But Jeremy, similar debates have played out before. I think that the level of rhetoric is a lot more heated now. And I think that a lot of these debates were happening more at the local level, um, it, you know, when it came to the mandatory seat belts, because it was town councils and things that were doing that first, and then states would go on and do it. But remember, at the time, the federal government argument was, if you don't do it, if you don't adopt a mandatory seatbelt law, then we're going to withhold funding from you having to deal with building roadways, right? And they yeah. didn't want, they didn't, you know, states eventually caved on that. Uh, but now it's just open warfare. You know, Abbott saying he's going to sue Biden. Biden's going to sue him. Like you said, uh, Biden, you know, immediately weighing in 
and saying that the problem is guys like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. Um, and I don't know how this all gets worked out in the end. Um, and who knows where we will be with the pandemic by the time the next election rolls around next November. We started out by saying, and this is, you always have to say this. We started out by saying that we have kind of broad outlines of what these elections may look like, the campaigns may look like, but who knows by the time we get to next November, what will have happened to completely scramble the board before the pandemic? We didn't know that that's the thing we'd be talking about for 18 months before September 11th, which we just had the 20th anniversary of that. There was, you know, in the general population, I mean, among uh, the intelligence agencies, they knew something was up. But among the general population, people had no idea that we'd yep. be talking about a terrorist attack and it would upend American life. And now you have this pandemic upending American life. And as I said earlier, we only had a hurricane a few days ago. We're not even really talking about that. Yeah, when's the, uh, la when's uh, the last time there was, you saw a story? When's the last time you saw a news story about a condo building falling down in Miami? Yeah. Right. It's that's kind of I mentioned it earlier in the show, but that's kind of everybody's moved on. We may be on to completely other stuff come next November. Yeah. Six months in politics is really like a lifetime. And so a year from now is like two lifetimes. And so so many things are, you know, who we, don't, we can't see what's going to come. And it's hard to know what's going to stick that we're hearing now. You know, there are mm. people like, oh, the big Democratic walkout. How's going to play out in the midterms oh, right. a year and a half from now? Nobody's going to remember. Now? They may yeah, not even care like, now. Exactly. It's like, and so it's like, it's hard to kind of like figure out where people are going to be a year from now. It's like, I love always talking about the time when, you know, people were saying, well, it was obvious that Giuliani and Hillary Clinton were headed for a collision course for the White House in right. 2008. You know, of course, neither one of them won their nomination. Uh, and so it's like, it took a year for that to kind of fix itself. <laughs> and so that's the thing. So in a year from now, who knows what we'll be talking about. And maybe you could almost gamble that a lot of the things we're talking about now won't make it. Mm -hmm. But then there's some things like it's hard to see a life in which we're not going to be debating how we respond to COVID-19, the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. It doesn't look like this thing's going away anytime soon. It seems like every time we feel like we're turning a corner on it, there's another variant that mm -hmm. is making it rounds. So it's like Lucy with the football, but I mean, I think yeah. that the, uh, the new abortion law in Texas will be very much in the mix. I think the idea of constitutional carry people walking around with handguns with no license may yep. be very much in the mix. Um, you know, nobody wants this, but you may have some, um, you know, some big example of some gun violence that breaks out that, that becomes a big issue. Uh, I would say all that. And then I would say this too, all of this, including, Abbott's record low approval ratings, all of that happens before he has spent even one of his $55 million in his campaign to yep. start to prop himself up and create an image and create a narrative. And we still don't even know, uh, other than some rumblings that we heard this week about maybe Beto O'Rourke really getting into the race for governor, they still, the Democrats still don't even have a candidate for governor. So yep. we'll, we'll, we'll get to all of that. And that's why we show up for work every day to let you know what is going on. If you enjoy this show, you know you do. You sat there for 53 minutes and listened to it. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. We don't judge you. Give us the best rating you can. And uh, I think that's five stars. If it's only four, do four. If it's five, is it five stars, Sarah? If it's four stars, we get fired, right? If anybody <laughs> does, or the bosses call and say, why did that happen? You ever go to the um, oil change place and then afterwards they say, Please don't do only four stars, five stars, please, because the bosses are going to talk to us. Same thing. We don't need that aggravation. G give us five stars. We appreciate it. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We'll see you here next week. Mm -hmm.